Welcome to the Modern Mexico Podcast. I'm your host, Nathaniel Parrish. On today's episode of the podcast, we're talking about the Mexican-American War. Over the last few years, the U.S.-Mexico border has become a flashpoint in political discourse in the U.S. Former President Donald Trump catalyzed his rise to power with a call to build a wall along the U.S.-Mexico border. In 2023, right-wing politicians are actively calling for U.S. military intervention in Mexico and for U.S. soldiers to attack Mexico's drug cartels. Right-wing governors are even sending National Guard troops from distant states to patrol the border region safe to say that the U.S.-Mexico border looms large within political discourse in the U.S. The nearly 2,000-mile U.S.-Mexico border stretches across a variety of ecosystems and landscapes and touches four different states in the U.S. and six states in Mexico. Just 200 years ago, much of the western swath of the modern-day border zone was inhabited or visited by small groups of Spanish or English-speaking settlers and traders. But this area was far from the population centers in central Mexico and the U.S.'s eastern seaboard. The border region overall was peripheral and not hugely important to economic and political dynamics in either the U.S. or Mexico. But today, cities such as El Paso and Juarez, Tijuana and San Diego have emerged as major population hubs, home to millions of residents and thousands of businesses that benefit from cross-border trade. Today, The U.S.-Mexico border, while far from the longest border zone in the world, stands out as the most economically and culturally significant. In 2021, just under 7 million trucks crossed the U.S. border. In 2022, the U.S. sent $455 billion of exports to Mexico, and Mexico sent another $324 billion in exports to the U.S. More broadly, in terms of music, sports, culture, and business, the U.S.-Mexico border has proven to be one of the most vibrant sources of cross-cultural exchange anywhere in the world. But in both the U.S. and Mexico, the origin story of the establishment of the modern border between the two countries has mostly faded out of popular political discourse. Our guest today on the podcast is historian Peter Gardino, the author of an immensely engaging new book called The Dead March, A History of the Mexican-American War. Hi, Peter. Welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you for having me today. So I wanted to see if you can help set the stage for us. And I wanted to ask, what three words would you pick to sum up or describe the Mexican-American War? So just to sort of set the stage, actually, I think I'm going to use the three words to set the stage. Um, 
the three words I would think of would be tragic, unjust, and damaging. Uh, tragic because, as often happens in war, uh, many, many people died uh, far sooner than they otherwise would have. They died directly through violence. They died of hunger in many cases in Mexico. Uh, they died of disease. Uh, we're talking about about 13,000 American soldiers died in this war, probably about 25,000 Mexicans, uh, maybe split evenly between soldiers and civilians. Um, in addition to the death itself, there's you know all of the hardship and pain that people endured during this war. So whenever you're talking about a war, you're talking about a tragedy. Um, I, unjust is a good word to describe this war because it was very definitely a war of conquest. Uh, President Polk and other expansionists really wanted California, uh, which is pretty much what California is today, and also New Mexico, which actually, uh, the, the, what was called New Mexico then, included Arizona, New Mexico, uh, Colorado, and Nevada today. Um, they were uh, very interested in acquiring this territory. They made overtures to Mexico to try to buy this territory. Mexico was not interested in selling. Um, and what Polk did is he engineered a war in order to force Mexico to sell his territory. Uh, he engineered this war by marching uh, American troops into the recently acquired uh, territory of Texas. Texas had become independent about 10 years before the war, and then the U.S. had annexed Texas. Um, and he marched them not, in, not only into Texas, but past the boundaries of Texas into territory that pretty much everyone in the world considered to be Mexican territory. Um, forcing a confrontation with the American force, with, with the Mexican forces um, um, that were stationed there, and setting off this war, he was looking to fight a very short war. Um, you know, just a few skirmishes, and then hopefully Mexico would fold and they would they would um, sell this territory. But Mexicans were simply not interested, especially after the fighting um, started. And many Mexicans from many different social classes were very willing to fight this war as hard and, and, and as long as they could possibly do this. So after battles in northern Mexico, um, uh, where Americans tended to gain tactical victories but couldn't really advance strategically, partially because of the geography of northern Mexico and the desert serving as a barrier, um, the, the U.S. government launched another invasion of Mexico, this one through the Gulf of Mexico, um, through Veracruz, and then up into central Mexico, where most of the people in Mexico lived and where the capital city of Mexico City is. And um, that invasion, which again, uh, you know, caused many different bloody battles and a, and, a, and a fierce guerrilla war against the Americans, eventually resulted in the occupation of Mexico City. And only after that, uh, you know, more than two years into the war, did they begin to actually um, negotiate a settlement. Okay. Uh, so this war went on much longer than Polk expected it to go on, um, and, and, and it caused much more death and destruction than he ever expected to, 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 to cause. The third word I used was damaging, um, because this war has cast a very deep and very dark shadow over Mexico's relationship to the U.S. ever since. Um, before the war, Mexicans saw the U.S. as a benevolent force in the world, um, and, 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 and in particular as a potential ally against what they saw as authoritarian, monarchical European governments that might try to reconquer Mexico and reconquer Latin America. After the war, you couldn't see the U.S. that way anymore. And Mexican uh, regular people and Mexican politicians have continually had to sort of look at the U.S. and realize these people just want to get something out of us. We have to figure out what they want to get out of us. And we have to you know, adjust our expectations and adjust our policies to see that if we can get something in return for whatever they want from us. Um, it's been a very adversarial relationship. 
that sometimes is dressed up in language about about alliance and language about a mutual uh, desire for democracy. Uh, but generally speaking, any Mexican politician is very wary of the United States. Okay, interesting. So overall, you pick the words tragic, unjust, and damaging. And you know, overall, those are pretty negative words. And it seems like this war might be something of an uncomfortable chapter in history that some contemporary political commentators might not be terribly enthusiastic about reviving and examining, but I definitely think it's important for people on both sides of the border to engage with this history. Um, for instance, I, I ride my bike past the Chapultepec Castle in one of the main parks in Mexico City almost every week. And I never knew until I read your book that U.S. soldiers had attacked and taken over that, that castle. So that was just one example in my own life of kind of not knowing some of this history. And I think that in your book, you really do a great job of bringing this history to life. And you explain how both Mexico and the United States were forced to recruit volunteer soldiers to build their armies. And I'm wondering if you can describe how these citizen armies were or were not representative of the countries they fought for. Oh, sure. Um, when the war started, both countries had regular armies that were pretty similar to each other. Uh, they both had professional officers uh, from the middle class, and they both had soldiers who were from the poorest of the poor. Um, in the Mexican army, those soldiers were typically conscripted and were forced into the army. In the U.S., they were uh, poor people from urban cities, including immigrants, who had joined the army because they were desperate for economic opportunity, couldn't keep a roof over their heads, couldn't keep clothes on their back. And the army offered that to them. It offered them a chance to eat regularly, to have clothing, to live in the barracks. Um, and in both countries, uh, people looked on those soldiers, most civilians looked on those soldiers, not as people who were patriotic or anything like that, but as you know, people who were sort of the poorest of the poor and, and, and to be despised. Um, these regular armies were too small to fight a war on this scale. So both Mexico and the US recruited volunteers. The American volunteers were recruited um, mostly from the, from the sort of Mississippi and Ohio River watersheds um, from t small towns and, and rural areas that are only recently were in areas that had recently been inhabited by Native Americans. And it was basically parents and grandparents had forced the Native Americans out. Um, um, so these young men were very often imbued uh, with a, a racism that was very common in the United States at that time, a racism against Native Americans and also racism against Mexicans. Um, Generally, they were, they were inclined to believe the worst things about Mexicans uh, from the press, and they were much more inclined than regular soldiers to commit violence against Mexican civilians. In Mexico, the sort of base for the volunteers was much, much broader. They were recruited in, in, in major cities. They were recruited in, in rural areas. Uh, some were of African descent. Many were of indigenous descent. Many were of mestizos. Um, generally, they were more representative of, of Mexican society. Um, but one of the striking things about these volunteers in Mexico and the U.S. is that in both cases, when you saw the formation of these units, you saw a lot of the same kinds of ceremonies. You know, people giving patriotic speeches, 
um, uh, you know, you know, uh, you know, people applauding when they when they marched by, uh, music, all of those sorts of things. So if you were like in one of these ceremonies where they're raising a resident a, a regiment in say Indiana or Ohio, and you saw the same thing in Mexico City or somewhere near there, you'd be looking at basically the same sorts of displays of patriotism, but some for the U.S. and some for Mexico. Okay, interesting. So, as I was reading, I I definitely kind of saw how you how you pointed some of these differences within the armies out and I thought it was interesting to see some of that discrimination from upper middle class Protestant officers in the US Army against Catholic immigrant soldiers and on the Mexican side how there was also a, a cultural divide between some of the relatively well-educated Spanish-speaking officers and the indigenous soldiers from rural communities, most of whom had probably never visited Mexico City and were still working to see how their communities fit within the Mexican nation. And I also thought it was interesting how after U.S. soldiers seized Mexico City, some wealthy Mexican business leaders seemed to be more worried about disruptions to the status quo from the capital's lower income residents than they were about ongoing confrontations with the soldiers from the U.S. And so something that kind of stood out to me was that on both sides of the border, it seemed like national pride is important, but in many cases, social class seemed to trump patriotism for some individuals who are involved in the in the conflict so i think that those details are, are really interesting because they help us delve beyond simplistic narratives about nationalistic tropes and one other thing that i wanted to ask you about is how the different political and economic dynamics in the U.S. and Mexico played a role in the outcome of the conflict? So that's a really great question. Um, politically, the war was very divisive in the United States. Um, there was a, uh, the U.S. was very divided at that point between the Whigs and the Democrats. Um, and there was a brief initial burst of kind of patriotic fervor and uh, many of the opposition, the Whigs actually uh, initially joined the war effort. But very soon, uh, quite a lot of Americans, mostly Whigs, came to see the war as unjust um, as an effort to expand American territory to allow more territory for slave owners to, to, to control. And fewer and fewer Americans volunteered for service over time. It was harder to fill out volunteer regiments late in the war, very hard, in fact. Uh, one of the most famous opponents of the war was actually Abraham Lincoln, who was a young congressman from Illinois, uh, whose uh, first famous speech in Congress came when he stood up in Congress and he denounced President Polk for engineering the beginning of the war and, and literally accused Polk of lying to Congress about where the first skirmish in the war had taken place, uh, which Polk had said that American blood was spilled on American soil. And Lincoln said, show me the spot. And for a while, his nickname was Spotty Lincoln because of the speech, because he had, he had yelled at the president, show me the spot. Um, in Mexico, in contrast, although it was also very politically divided, 
um, uh, they united around the war effort. It was difficult for conservatives to, to say, well, we're just going to let the U.S. do what it, what, it, what it wants. It was difficult for liberals to say the same thing. Uh, for quite a long time during the war, uh, they united around the war effort. And that unity didn't really begin to break down until after the U.S. had actually occupied Mexico City. Um, the biggest uh, deciding factor about how this war played out was actually economics. Uh, the U.S. was a very wealthy nation, and Mexico was a, quite a poor one. Mexico had a very small and unproductive economy, mostly because before the Industrial Revolution, it was very difficult to move products around Mexico. Um, uh, the geography was not conducive to them having any rivers that you could ha actually move things on or any canals you could move things on. Railroads were not a thing yet. Um, and so that meant that the economy was very heavily regionalized. It was very difficult to get any Mexican products out to international markets or even to move them to different markets inside the country. The U.S. was exactly the opposite kind of place between the Atlantic seaboard and the Mississippi watershed and the Ohio River and the, and the canals that were built in the east. We had water transport all over the place and we had lots and lots of cropland where, where they got enough rain that we could sell crops to Europe and move them um, internally in the U.S. And that meant that we could take advantage of the, of the Industrial Revolution happening in Europe and also begin our own Industrial Revolution. What this meant is that in the 1840s, when this war took place, Mex the Mexican economy was very small. Uh, the Mexican government was very poor. And the U.S. was the opposite. And that meant that Mexican soldiers very often went hungry, very rarely had adequate clothing or even shoes. Um, and were forced to use weapons that were left over from the Napoleonic Wars of the 18-teens that they had bought cheaply from the British, um, 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 basically as part of some uh, you know, fairly corrupt deals um, um, to sell you know, you know, cheap weapons to the Mexicans. Um, and their weapons were so bad that when the U.S. actually captured these, these muskets, they literally, rather than try to use them, they just burned them. They built bonfires out of these things that the Mexicans had, had, had you know, were, were you know, desperate to use in battle. Um, it also meant um, that the biggest problem the Mexican generals faced was they could get troops you know, organized. They could get people to volunteer or they could conscript people. They could organize military units. They could train them. But the biggest problem they had was keeping them fed because they realized that if they didn't feed these people, A, they would not be very effective in battle, but B, they would just start to melt away. I mean, people who are hungry are not, not going to sit in camp and, and, and do training. They're going to try to go find some food, maybe try to get back to their families where there is some food. Um, and this was very often the determining factor and even like where particular battles took place and when, at which moments Mexican generals decided, okay, we have to fight a battle and we have to try to stop them here. Um, sometimes it was, well, we have an advantageous situation in terms of terrain, but very often it was, if we don't fight now, if we wait a week, we won't have any soldiers left because we can't feed them, <laughs> right? Um, and one of those famous campaigns of the war, uh, uh, Antonio Lopez de Santa Ana took his troops from San Luis Potosí through a two-week march across the desert to confront uh, Zachary Taylor's forces uh, near Saltillo. And he did that whole thing because he was running out of money to feed the soldiers. And he literally, when they sat out on this march, he gave this speech where he said, okay, I know, you know, we don't have any money, we don't have any food, but we're going to go take what we need from the enemy. Um, um, and he almost succeeded in actually doing that. Uh, but in the end, Mexico simply lost its ability to resist because it could no longer feed anyone um, or arm anyone. And at that point, the U.S. got the deal, pretty much the deal that the U.S. wanted out of the war. Interesting. So 
That you mentioned hunger, and I think over the course of your book, that is definitely one detail that stood out to me, just in how in different campaigns and battles, the issue of feeding troops came up again and again, and how it seemed like Mexico's military leaders really had to take on additional roles in, in figuring out simply how to feed and finance their uh, soldiers. And, you know, this is history that we're talking about, but I think that there is something there that also reflects some current trends in, in modern Mexico. And we know that today Mexico collects just over half as much tax revenue as a percentage of GDP as the U.S. And I think that Mexico's comparatively lower tax take still contributes to the country's long-standing problems with weak institutions and exacerbates the federal government's limited presence in many isolated communities. So you can look at Mexico today and see that trend in effect and see how it affects the security dynamics in many parts of rural Mexico. And in reading your book, you can also see how that economic reality uh, also played a role in the outcome of the war. And something that I think is really interesting is that in contemporary Mexican popular discourse, if this war is mentioned at all, I think a lot of the blame is heaped on Santa Ana and his failure to achieve victory. And it's interesting to me that the lesson of the war seems to be to blame an individual versus looking to institutional factors or thinking about lessons about government capacity. And more broadly, when we, we talk about lessons from the war and we talk about contemporary political discourse, I'm wondering if you think that the Mexican-American War offers any lessons or warnings to right-wing politicians in the U.S. who are currently advocating for military intervention in Mexico when it comes to dealing with Mexico's organized crime groups? So I think uh, there's a couple of large categories of things we can say about it. Um, one is that it would not be successful. Okay, uh, the, Mexico is is not a small place. Uh, it is a very large place. Okay, uh, it's about a third the size of the U.S. both in territory and in population. Um, and Mexicans are are, are simply not going to sit by idly during a U.S. military intervention in Mexico. Uh, a military intervention in Mexico uh, would be much more difficult, uh, you know, than our 20-year losing effort in Afghanistan was. And much less likely to succeed. And since we lost last time, um, uh, you know, in Afghanistan, I don't think we're going to win in Mexico either. I, I literally shudder to think about the degree of violence that would be involved in that sort of thing. Um, but the bigger problem is that even like military strikes that were designed to take out cartel leadership um, would be a failure in, in terms of, of of dealing with the drug problem in the U.S. because they'd be replicating a strategy that's been tried and tried and tried again. I mean. Uh, uh, the Mexican leadership has been very successful in taking out the leadership of cartels. It, it has been a significant, um, you know, policy um, uh, effort in this country since the, the, the administration of Felipe Calderon. Um, 
And all that did is make the violence in Mexico worse. Because when you take out cartel leadership, you know, it isn't like the demand for drugs in the U.S. goes away. It isn't like the ability to, 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 to buy guns in the U.S. goes away. Um, it's just that other people step into those leadership roles. And often they fight among each other uh, to decide who is going to step into that leadership role. You can sort of fragment the cartels by taking out leadership, but it, there's just going to be a lot of smaller businesses rather than one, you know, rather than a few larger businesses, and they're going to fight among each other. And that's been the real story behind the violence in Mexico for more than 10 years now. Um, you know, so you know, having the U.S. Marines take out the cartels rather than the Mexican Marines take out the cartels is not going to lead to a different outcome in the United States. There's the, the drugs are as cheap and plentiful now as they were 50 years ago, or in fact, they're cheaper and more plentiful now than they were 50 years ago. They're cheaper, more plentiful now than they were, you know, you know, more than 10 years ago when the Mexican government began actually going after cartel leadership. Um, if you wanna, if you wanna, you know, you know, you know, reduce the drug problem in the U.S., you probably should be putting your money in a completely different direction. I mean, you should, you probably should be um, not trying to re reduce the supply of drugs so much as trying to reduce demand for the drugs. Um, you know, you, you should be putting money into, into you know, making drug treatment readily available, especially evidence-based drug treatment, um, you know, readily available in the United States. It's actually really hard to get into drug treatment uh, um, programs in the U.S., not easy the way it should be. I mean, if you want to shrink this problem, you have to shrink the market for drugs, not the supply for drugs. Okay, interesting. And something else that I, I definitely... Uh, absorbed in reading your book was just the the violence that U.S. soldiers and you know contractors who supported U.S. troops faced from civilians in, in Mexico City. So I thought that definitely could be a lesson just in this idea that U.S. soldiers coming into Mexico ostensibly to fight uh, organized crime groups might not face a, uh, a welcoming reception from from locals in uh, mountain towns and places like Sinaloa or Chihuahua or Michoacan. And with that in mind, I think that whether it's right-wing governors from faraway states sending National Guard troops to the border or Lindsey Graham or John Kennedy insulting or threatening to invade Mexico, I think it's important for us to state that sending U.S. troops to battle drug cartel gunmen in Mexico is just not a serious policy solution. And on previous podcasts, we've discussed the reach of organized crime into Mexico's army, local police forces and export industries such as the avocado sector. So this idea that drug cartels are an easily defined military target, it's simply a fantasy. And I think it's fair to say that it's more about fueling toxic domestic politics in the US than it is a serious policy proposal for improving security in Mexico. So. I think your book is important because it explains the often horrific details of what a U.S. military incursion into Mexico would actually look like. And finally, I also wanted to ask you how you think the Mexican-American War is remembered in general political discourse, both within Mexico and in the U.S. today? 
That's a really interesting question because the memory of the war is very different in the two places. Um, in Mexico, it's a part of every school child's education. I mean, they, 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 they read about this war, okay? Um, they read a somewhat distorted version of it, one that blames Santa Ana a bit too much, uh, frankly. Um, um, but, they, but, but, but they very much read about this war and they're aware of it. If you go around Mexico, there are monuments um, um, you know, to the different battles of this war. There are some of the heroes of this war have streets named after them, um, and, you know, especially in Mexico City, but also in other places. Uh, so there's a general consciousness that, yeah, this war took place. It was a tragedy, and the U.S. stole a large amount of Mexican territory, um, and, and they still have it today. Okay, so Mexicans, you know, generally speaking, we know these things. Um, Americans don't pay much attention to this war at all. And if you see it in U.S. history courses, it's always just as kind of a prelude to the Civil War. Um, um, that this, this war, um, the, the struggle over the territory the U.S. acquired, whether it was going to be slave territory or free territory, led directly to the Civil War. And that's a very correct way of, 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 of you know, what, definitely one of the outcomes of the Mexican-American War. Um, but the other way you see this in kind of popular culture is that a lot of sort of Civil War buffs uh, are very aware that a lot of the, the generals became famous in the Civil War, including both U.S. Grant and Robert E. Lee, had been junior officers in the Mexican-American War. This was the first place they'd actually gone into battle in most cases. Um, and in fact, you, you, know, you often see sort of novels about that, or, or this is mentioned in popular histories or even um, professional history books. Um, and that's very much the case. Um, you know, this was very definitely true. Uh, Lee was a, 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 a captain who was a very, very in a very well-placed position on the staff of, of General Winfield Scott and actually did some very important reconnaissance missions uh, during the war. Grant was a more lowly lieutenant um, and, 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 and a, a more pedestrian kind of unit, although he also had his role in the war. Um, and Grant writes extensively about the war in his, his, his most, uh, most famous work, which were his memoirs. Um, Grant also writes about, in the memoirs, about how this war definitely caused the American Civil War. And Grant, um, like a lot of US professional officers, believed that the Mexican War was unjust. Um, and so one of the most famous things he says in this war, uh, which is difficult not to quote right now, is that nations like individuals are punished for their transgressions. We got our punishment in the most sanguine, sanguinary and expensive war of modern times. He's talking directly about how the fact that the U.S. fought this war of conquest, this unjust war of conquest against Mexico, led to the, the loss of lives of more than 700,000 American soldiers in the Civil War just a few years later. Um, um, so, you know, you know, generally speaking, though, most of that story in the U.S. gets kind of buried now. Um, you know, many, many people, um, you know, in, 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 in the U.S. don't really have a very strong consciousness of this. Um, they, their general consciousness of Mexico is not based on the notion that, well, yeah, it's a small, weak country that we push around. It's more based on the notion that Mexico is kind of a lawless place, uh, full of criminals, um, 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 you know, those sorts of things, um, um, you know, so they, it, it perpetuates kind of stereotypes about Mexicans um, that, that, you know, were first actually formed during this war, right before it, during the Texas Revolution. So that's another way in which all of this is very tragic, uh, is this kind of erasure of historic memory. So you just mentioned that there are, in fact, a few monuments and streets that reference this this war in Mexico today. But overall, I think that 
when it comes to Mexico's popular history, it seems like there is space for remembering Mexico's ouster of the Spanish and later the defeat of the French army, but it seems like it mostly ignores the U.S. invasion of Mexico City of 1848. And I know that President Andres Manuel López Obrador likes to make historical references in his discourse, and he moved into the National Palace in the historic center of the city and made the Zocalo Square his main stage. But I'm not sure that he's ever mentioned the fact that U.S. soldiers once hung an American flag over the Zocalo. So it seems that mostly today, year after year, Mexican patriotism is celebrated in communities across the country by remembering Mexican soldiers' victories over Spanish and French armies. But overall, the U.S. and Mexico really don't do much to commemorate the Mexican-American War. But I definitely think that this history is really important for our understanding of the origin of the modern U.S.-Mexico border. And in the aftermath of the invasion, the U.S. negotiated to purchase over 500,000 square miles of land, including everything from Colorado and Wyoming to California, Arizona, and New Mexico. So something that I thought of while reading the book is that in the U.S., Ronald Reagan is sometimes remembered for his city-on-a-hill speech in the sense that young generations of Americans should learn about American history and America's place in the world. But we don't often point out the irony of the fact that Reagan launched his political career in California, a territory that the U.S. absorbed from Mexico after sending soldiers to invade Mexico City. So maybe it's best for us to end with that and end on a little bit of a reflective note in thinking about the history of the Mexican-American War and its legacy today. Um, But overall, I just want to say I absolutely loved reading your book. I think it's immensely engaging. Uh, it's very well written. It's fun to read. I, you know, breeze through chapter after chapter and just really enjoyed it from start to finish. So uh, I just want to say thank you so much for joining us on the podcast today. Well, thank you for having me. It's been uh, really good to be able to talk to you today. I wanted to take a short break to remind listeners that the Modern Mexico podcast is sponsored by Nomade Tostadores Coffee and by Minerva Beer. Nomade Tostadores Coffee is available at the Bada Funky coffee shop in Mexico City and Minerva Beer is available at the El Deposito chain of craft beer stores in Mexico City. Thanks for tuning in to another episode of the Modern Mexico Podcast. If you like what you heard in the podcast today, check out my book, Searching for Modern Mexico, 
which is available on Amazon. The next episode of the podcast is coming soon. Until then, hasta luego, amigos.